Commercial whaling no longer exists in the United States, but back in the 19th century, it was big business. At its peak, there were more than 700 American whaling ships across the world. In the early 1850s, these vessels killed more than 8,000 whales a year and brought in more than 5 million pounds of baleen. That's the thick bristles made of keratin that's inside a whale's mouth. Whale products could be found in every room in the house. It was used for soap and candles, but also for street lighting and industrial lubricants. The whale was nothing less than the chemical factory of the 19th century. But the whaling industry wasn't just about oil and blubber. It also extended into the culture of whaling communities. For example, women of whaling families often used whalebone as a way to keep their corsets stiff. Ouch. <laughs> what do you know about that, ouch, Nathan? <laughs> Not a, nothing at all. <laughs> There's also plenty of art depicting the whaling world. The longest painting in the U.S. is actually a piece called The Grand Panorama of a Whaling Voyage Round the World. The longest, really? How long is it? Get ready for this. It's 1,300 feet long. That's longer than the height of the Empire State Building. Wow. This panorama shows different scenes of a whaling trip from navigating through erupting volcanoes in the Cape Verde Islands to returning home to the port of New Bedford, Massachusetts. Wait a minute, we're talking little local New Bedford, Massachusetts? Yep, that's right. At the height of the whaling industry, New Bedford, Massachusetts was the whaling capital of the world. You can actually go to New Bedford today and see the grand panorama. Is a really stunningly beautiful thing drawn by uh, Benjamin Russell, who is a, a whaleman out of New Bedford. That's Michael Dyer. He's the curator of maritime history at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. He says this guy Benjamin Russell was actually a failed businessman who decided to go out whaling. And he illustrated different scenes in a sketchbook along his journey. But he came back and he, and he was going to make some money uh, as an artist. Uh, he, he was tapping into the most popular themes of the day as far as keeping the interest of, uh, of a 19th century public. So he was talking about literary themes like Robinson Crusoe, like the mutiny on the bounty, like the wreck of the Essex. Dyer says when Russell painted the Grand Panorama in 1848, New Bedford was bustling. The whaling industry brought in everybody from boat steerers to bankers. The town also welcomed a penniless, would-be writer, Herman Melville. In December of 1840, Melville came into New Bedford to climb aboard the Acushnet and go out to sea. He'd go on to write about the thriving port in Moby Dick. In New Bedford, fathers, they say, give whales for dowers to their daughters and portion off their nieces with a few porpoises apiece. You must go to New Bedford to see a brilliant wedding, for they say they have reservoirs of oil in every house and every night recklessly burn their lengths in spermaceti candles. Yes, business was good in New Bedford. As the whaling industry grew, Dyer says the city became one of the wealthiest in the country. 
New Bedford was the fourth largest seaport in the USA. Now that's saying something in, in, a, in a maritime culture. So, you know, the USA was a maritime nation. You know, New Bedford was sitting on $46 million on its, on its five banks, you know, uh, in the middle of the 1840s. So how did New Bedford become the whaling capital? What ended up setting it apart from places like Nantucket? I got one word for you, Joanne. Location, location, location. Uh-huh. Nantucket was an island, and New Bedford was on the mainland. It had dense forest on one side and a strong river on the other. But the glory days of whaling didn't last forever in New Bedford. The beginning of the end for the industry came in 1859 with the discovery of petroleum in Pennsylvania. Then, just a couple of years later, the Civil War came along. The Civil War really did affect the whaling industry uh, in that the CSS Alabama, the, the CSS Florida, these commerce raiders, the Shenandoah, targeted Yankee whalers, and they targeted them on purpose. Antebellum America was a maritime nation. Much of that maritime trade was centered in the Northeast, but all of it depended on lighthouses. And if, uh, if you could knock out the whalers that were providing the sperm oil to the lighthouses, it could really cripple navigation, commercial navigation. And that was exactly what the Confederate commerce raiders did, was they targeted Yankee whalers. What happens to New Bedford after the Civil War? How does the city respond to the decline of the whaling industry? New Bedford merchants began putting their money into other things. They uh, Very shortly after the war, within five years of the end of the Civil War, the second biggest uh, textile mill in New Bedford was built. Uh, and, but these, these textile mills in New Bedford just grew and grew and grew. And so it, it really it changed radically. Smokestacks rising big, you know, three, four-story brick factories uh, that are, you know, three city blocks long. And the people who came into work in the mills were French Canadians. Uh, they were uh, Portuguese Islanders. They were English, highly specialized English mill operatives who came in. It radically changed the look of the place uh, because the whalers began to, to dwindle. So obviously, Brian, whaling has a really rich history in New Bedford. But what does it end up meaning to the city today? How is whaling remembered there today? Dyer says you can see the whale door knockers and weather vanes around the town, but there's also some really interesting artifacts that have been collected by the museum. I love museums. What do you got? Well, we talked earlier about the grand panorama that's located in New Bedford. Actually, the painting is so long, it can't fit inside the museum. But there's still a lot inside the place that can give you a sense of whaling at its high point. There's huge whale skeletons, old harpoons and spears, and the model of a whaling ship. And on top of all of that, they have the world's largest collection of scrimshaw art. Okay, hold on. You're going to have to help me out again. I know I've heard something about scrimshaw. Bone or something, right? That's exactly right, Nathan. Dyer gave a tour of their scrimshaw gallery. Here he is with some more details. Scrimshaw, of course, is... uh very fine work that was done on shipboard during whaling voyages with materials obtained in the fishery, including, you know, the skeletal bones of whales could be 
cut down nice and thin and, and joined together into these, into these complex swifts and yarn winders. There could be the teeth of sperm whales uh, that were extracted from the jaw and polished and, uh, and, and engraved with all kinds of, of scenes and uh, pictures copied from magazines and books and, uh, and you know, ship portraits and all, uh, whatever struck the sailor uh, who was doing it. So, uh, you know, the Scrimshaw is, uh, is, uh, provides a wonderful insight into, into, into the culture of whaling, you know, around the same time that we're talking, in the 1830s and 40s and 50s. Now, Scrimshaw isn't just art for art's sake. It also had practical purposes. Dyer says it was often whittled into tools. And like we mentioned earlier, it was even used in women's corsets as something called a busk. So a busk uh, is a stiff piece of material that would go down the front of a lady's corset. Um, and it would, uh, you know, the corsets were, uh, were designed to, uh, to keep your figure uh, upright. And whalemen would, would make these busks and give them to their, uh, to their uh, wives or girlfriends or, or other you know, female members of their family. Um, but you know, to me, they, they're fabulous because they speak so directly to the maritime culture that these people were living in. It's not just the sailors, you know, it's not just the merchants, it's the entire community. So that you, know, you see a busk like this one where you've got a, a whale boat with six guys in it um, and, uh, and they're towing, being towed along behind a sperm whale that's spouting blood, and they're getting ready to stab it with a, with a, with a whaling lance, and this is engraved in color on a piece of, of uh, whale skeletal bone. So this is, this is a, a, a piece of whaling art that a man's going to give to a woman to put in her underwear. This is part of the culture, you know? You can spend all day looking at the scrimshaw in this gallery, but there's one piece in particular that stands out. This particular sperm whale tooth is one of the, you know, one of the great pieces of scrimshaw by Frederick Myrick of Nantucket, and, and, he, and he would engrave a, 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 little, a little poem on these teeth, and he did 37 of these teeth, and many of them have this poem, and it says, Death to the living, long life to the killers, success to sailors' wives, and greasy luck to whalers. So that's a perfect synopsis. That is the perfect insight. That is the perfect statement. If you want to understand Yankee whaling, it goes like that. Death to the living, long life to the killers, success to sailors' wives, and greasy luck to whalers. Wait a minute. Greasy <laughs> luck to whalers. Now, sometimes when I hear a nifty phrase, I say to someone... I want to keep that. I don't, I don't know if I want to keep greasy luck to whalers, guys. <laughs> you have good judgment, Joanne. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. It might seem a bit odd to think of a time when whaling reigned supreme as an industry. But thanks to these artifacts, we can get a glimpse into the story of places like New Bedford. So I want to thank Michael Dyer again and the New Bedford Whaling Museum for giving us this glimpse into the past. 